This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. Fascism has returned to Italy. A right-wing coalition, including the far-right Brothers of Italy party, won 44% of the vote at the last election, meaning that the Brothers of Italy party leader, Giorgia Meloni, will become the country's first female prime minister and first fascist to lead the country since Benito Mussolini. So, um, yeah, hashtag fascist girl boss, am I right? Now, there's a lot of people on the far right in the United States who are celebrating this victory because, of course, and as I talk about this, you're going to see that there's a lot of parallels between Italy and the United States currently. And this isn't necessarily a unique phenomenon to Italy, but nonetheless, there's a lot of similarities. So let's get to the far right and their celebration. This includes individuals like Mike Cernovich, Jack Posobiec, and Steven Crowder, of course, all taking to Twitter to celebrate her victory. Charlie Kirk writes, Trump has sparked an international movement from Brazil to Sweden to Italy. The only international movement Joe Biden ever sparked is the mass invasion on our southern border. In 2022, we turned the tide. Sure. Marjorie Taylor Greene congratulated her, as did Arizona gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake, and also Bobo chimed in saying this month sweden voted for a right-wing government now italy voted for a strong right-wing government the entire world is beginning to understand that the woke left does nothing but destroy november 8th is coming soon and the usa will fix our house and senate let freedom reign now as usual the right as bobo did will try to blame all of these victories on the unpopularity of the left but as you're going to see that is wrong flatly but there is a reason why these parties are coming to power. But first, I've got to share another individual who is presumably celebrating today because last month she said something um, very positive about the new prime minister before she knew that she was going to be prime minister. But I mean, there was an indication that the far right would do well in this party. That individual who also uh, is happy, I'm assuming, is Hillary Clinton, who said this, the election of the first woman prime minister in a country always represents a break with the past. And that is certainly a good thing, Hillary Clinton said to an Italian journalist at the Venice International Film Festival earlier this month. So we have far right fascists in the United States uniting with neoliberals like Hillary Clinton in the US to celebrate this hashtag girl boss because she's the first female prime minister of Italy, who also happens to be the first fascist to get elected since Benito Mussolini. Kind of an important detail there. But let's talk about the Brothers of Italy party. This is a party with a history of explicit fascism. The Atlantic explains Brothers of Italy, which Maloney has led since 2014, has an underlying and sinister familiarity. The party formed a decade ago to carry forth the spirit and legacy of the extreme right in Italy, which dates back to the Italian social movement, the party that formed in place of the National Fascist Party, which was banned after World War II, now just weeks before the 100th anniversary of the March on Rome, the October 1992 event that put Mussolini in power, Italy may have a former MSI 
anti-activist for its prime minister and a government rooted in fascism. And now just days later, we learn that that is indeed the case. Now, Maloney claims that this isn't a fascist party because, well, apparently fascism no longer exists. They're just a conservative party. But if you look at the way that they campaign, their policy platform, well, it's pretty obviously and transparently fascist. Now, this is fascism that is very similar to fascism in the United States, and it's also inspired by Hungarian fascism as well. As Claudia Teresi of Common Dreams explains, Maloney defines herself as pro-family, and she and her party collaborate with anti-abortion and anti-LGBTIQ plus movements. One of her main campaign themes is the need to increase Italy's low birth rate by encouraging native women to have babies while at the same time denouncing the danger of an ethnic substitution by immigrants. Now, fear-mongering about immigrants seems to be their go-to strategy, and what we're seeing there is this Italy-first, great replacement conspiracy that immigrants are going to replace traditional Italians there. So, you know, the same thing we see here, we're seeing there, and if they're not explicitly promoting this conspiracy theory, well, they're certainly priming people to think about immigrants in this way, which is deeply dangerous, which is inherently fascistic. Now, the question is, how did Italy get to this particular moment? Well, as Michael Lenardi, who's living in Italy, points out, Berlusconiism, the creation of the disastrous neoliberal and U.S. NATO-controlled Democratic Party, modeled after the United States' own corporate-driven party, coupled with a general malaise and degradation of Italian culture overall, have contributed to create the ingredients for the Steve Bannon-groomed Maloney to rise to the top like a toxic slime on the surface of a sea of contaminated waste. Italy has become like a country of spoiled children that has lost its identity. It has been colonized and lobotomized by multinational corporate interests, the mythological concept of the American dream, mass consumerism, U.S.-NATO dictated militarism, and crass materialism for almost 30 years from Berlusconi's first election in 1994 and even going back to the post-World War II era when the United States asserted its fear of influence by steamrolling an anti-communist agenda in order to maintain geopolitical control over the peninsula, Italy has been slowly but steadily pulling out out its historical roots and erasing its historical memory. And really important here, wages have been stagnant for decades. The post-COVID-19 bailouts from the EU are drying up and the cost of everything is on the rise. The Italian people are suffering a major increase in economic hardship from the criminal and stratospheric rise of energy prices, leading to crippling inflation across the board, all compounded by the disastrous war in Ukraine, where Italy does whatever the United States government dictates. This has allowed for Maloney to ride a populist wave of anger as her political party strategically positioned itself as the opposition to the unfolding neoliberal disaster that has set the Italian and European economy back decades. So after neoliberalism has hollowed out the country, you know, led to stagnation of worker wages, you know, mass corporatization of the country has been a phenomenon that's been going on for decades. Well, it led to mass anger and disillusionment with the government and it's a lot of what we're seeing around the world like global capitalism is hollowing out democracies everywhere it is devastating communities so when you have you know bad worker prospects lower wages stagnation economically speaking people begin to get desperate and when you're desperate well that leads to you being more susceptible to radicalization especially when a demagogue comes along and explains to you 
why you're in this position. Now, it may be a false explanation. They're trying to blame everything on immigrants for the most part, and that's a bit of an oversimplification of their over overall ethos, right? It's it's more it's more pro-family and getting back to traditional values and whatnot. But overall, if they come with an explanation, even if that's a false explanation, it's an explanation nonetheless, and a lot of people will be galvanized by that seemingly populist message. That's the case in the United States. That was the case in Brazil. That's the case in Hungary. And the center-left just didn't get their act together. Or really, I should say the centrists didn't get their act together. They didn't read the room. They didn't ride on this populist wave. And ultimately, it led to their demise. And now, democracy is in danger in Italy because a fascist will assume control. Now, the one thing, the one antidote to fascism, which is what I've been claiming on this program for years, is a strong left-wing pro-worker party. And we're seeing how powerful that is in countries like Brazil, where Lula, the former president of Brazil, is currently leading Jair Bolsonaro, their fascist president, by a large margin. The problem here is that fascists don't go down easily. And the best strategy is to keep fascists out of power because once they actually take power, they can do a lot of damage. For example, Jair Bolsonaro right now, knowing that he's most likely going to lose to Lula, who's a kind of Bernie Sanders-like figure, well, he's pulling a Donald Trump claiming that the only way he doesn't win outright is if there is fraud. And a lot of people are expecting a sort of January 6th type event in the event he loses where he doesn't concede. The problem is that it could be much worse in Brazil than it was in the United States because unlike Donald Trump, Jair Bolsonaro actually has a lot of sway with the military. So we could see a potential military coup in the event he does not concede. Now, Lula is saying that he doesn't think that that is going to be the case after he wins, but we don't know. It could be a disaster. And this is why I always stress the best thing that you can do is keep fascists out of power because, again, not to sound like a broken record, they don't give up power easily and they're willing to take down democracy just to cling to power. But the problem is that, you know, these capitalist parties who have been the status quo for decades, they don't realize what's happening. They don't see the creep of fascism until it's too late, which puts us in situations like we're in now in the United States, in Brazil, and now Italy, among other countries. So, you know, this is just another country that has fallen to fascism. We're seeing the rise of a global fascistic movement. There is solidarity among fascists internationally. You know, Maloney, is somebody who is aligned with Steve Bannon, and this is only going to get worse. So unless these countries start turning things around, giving up the status quo that has economically depressed their populations, then these fascist demagogues, these pseudo-populists are going to keep coming to power so long as people are desperate. And that's a problem. So we have to push back against this and be wary that this trend is going to continue assuming nothing changes globally. But despite our apparent differences, Senator McConnell and I have forged a friendship, one that is rooted in our commonalities, including our pragmatic approach to legislating, our respect for the Senate as an institution, our love for our home states, and a dogged determination on behalf of our constituents. You know, in today's partisan Washington, it might shock some that a Democratic senator would consider the Republican leader of the Senate her friend but back home in Arizona, we don't view life through a partisan lens. Arizonans understand that while we may not agree on every issue, we do share the same values.
Well, that's one thing that she said that's true, actually. That was Democrat Kirsten Sinema speaking at the McConnell Center at the University of Louisville after she was invited by Mitch McConnell, a Republican. And just keep in mind that she's chumming it up with the Republican Party leader during an election season. I get that she doesn't align with most Democrats because she's functionally a Republican, but maybe find one moderate Democrat to campaign with. Not that they'd want her on the campaign trail stumbling for them because she's very unpopular, but maybe pretend as if you're not batting for the other team. I mean, imagine for a moment that a Republican chose to show up to an event with Chuck Schumer where they both exchange compliments and they talk about how reasonable the other is during an election season. I mean, Republicans would be outraged. Trump would be attacking them. Their career would be over. But for Democrats, apparently this is something that is celebrated by the right, even though Mitch McConnell would never let one of his members do what Kirsten Sinema is doing. And the thing that irritates me the most is the way that she frames this as, you know, she is aligned with Mitch McConnell for altruistic reasons. She is aligned with him because they're both above the fray. You know, this climate of hyperpolarization that he created it's, you know, something that we don't necessarily have to abide by. But she says this not just campaigning with any Republican. Again, Mitch McConnell is the individual who exacerbated the hyperpolarized, hyperpartisan state in Washington, D.C. that we see right now. He stole multiple Supreme Court seats from the other party. And we're supposed to believe that Mitch McConnell, of all people, is above hyperpartisan politics. I mean, it's it's borderline parody at this point, but that's where we are. She also said uh, that her and Mitch McConnell have a pragmatic approach to legislating, a respect for the Senate as an institution, and a dogged determination for their constituents. Well, if that were true, don't you think that your constituents would like you more? Because Kirsten Sinema is very, very unpopular among her own party among her own constituents and she made a joke during this event that was a little bit too on the nose take a look so as you all know control changes between the house and the senate every couple of years it's likely to change again in just a few weeks right um and so when the house passes legislation it represents that kind of rapidly shifting was that everything's fine right great <laughs> Not everyone likes me, so just check it, you know? Well, at least I'm glad that she knows how unpopular she is. She said, not everyone likes me, but more specifically, nobody likes you because when it comes to every single demographic, she is losing handily. As Inside Elections analyst Jacob Rubashkin points out, Kirsten Sinema is unpopular among everyone. Sometimes it seems like she's trying to please nobody, and if so, she's succeeding. Sinema is 20 points underwater among Democrats, 10 points underwater with independents, and 18 points underwater among Republicans. Now take a moment to soak in this poll here. She's unpopular across the board. She's underwater with men, with women, with older men, older women, young voters, old voters, white voters, Hispanic voters. She's universally loathed because she is transparently, exclusively legislating on behalf of her Wall Street donors. And this isn't necessarily an uncommon phenomenon with regard to senators, but nobody is as brazen about it as Kirsten Sinema. Even Republicans like Ted Cruz, who are complete sellouts, they will at least throw out some, you know, ostensibly populist things about how Americans can't afford gas. But Kirsten Sinema, she, she doesn't even 
try to pretend as if she cares about her own constituents. And part of why she's so unpopular is because of her refusal to get rid of the filibuster. And because she refuses to even create a carve out to the filibuster to do really important things like pass voting rights reform, get civil rights codified, well, it's causing a lot of pain from her own constituents. And we'll get to that, but that doesn't stop her from condescendingly talking down to her own constituents as if they're petulant children for even daring to ask that she get rid of the filibuster. Take a look at how she responds to a question about the filibuster. First, you touched on this in your talk, but can you expound on why you hold such support for the filibuster, especially when many others in your party have opposing views? That's such a great question, Madeline. You know, Senator McConnell mentioned this in his opening remarks, and I mentioned it in, in my remarks as well. The danger of eliminating the 60-vote threshold is that the Senate becomes the House. And I remind everyone, I, I left the House and ran for the Senate for a reason. <laughs> I remember my early years, I, I served for uh, six years in the House of Representatives. I remember being so frustrated during those six years because it felt like every time there was a big bipartisan solution that needed to happen, the Senate just kind of came up with a solution and then gave it to the House and we just ate it. And um, that's why I ran for the Senate. Yeah. I thought, wait a second, they're doing the work. So when Republicans are in control, they pass a little bit of crazy legislation. And when the Re Democrats are in control, they pass a little bit of crazy legislation. And the job of the Senate is to cool that passion. You know, there's a saying that um, the House is the cup of hot tea, and the Senate is the saucer in which you cool that tea. The Senate was designed to be a place that moves slowly, to cool down those passions, to think more strategically and long-term about the legislation before us. But the best thing you can do for your child is to not give them everything they want, right? And that's important to the United States Senate as well. We shouldn't get everything we want in the moment. So not only am I committed to the 60-vote threshold, I have an incredibly unpopular view. I actually think we should restore the 60-vote threshold for the areas in which it has been eliminated already. We should restore it. Yeah, not everyone likes that. Um, <laughs> So, you know, sometimes you can't give petulant children what they want. So when they ask for things like, you know, voting rights or civil rights, sometimes you've got to, you know, withhold that from them and let them throw the tantrum. But you've got to prove to them that they will not win. Like the way she's speaking about her own constituents here is just incredible. This is elitism on full display here. And let me remind you that she's not always against carve-outs to the filibuster, considering that this is the same person who created a carve-out to the filibuster when it came to raising the debt ceiling. Now, if Congress didn't raise the debt ceiling, that would be catastrophic for the U.S. economy. It would cause the United States government to default on its debt which would hurt everyone, but it would also hurt people who are elite, who have a lot of money in the stock market because their stock portfolios would unquestionably be affected by the US government defaulting on its debt. So here, this is something that she and her donors would never want to see happen. And to be clear, none of us want to see this happen. But the problem is that the only reason why she cared in this instance is because it personally affects her. It could harm her too. But when it comes to her own constituents, she doesn't care if the filibuster is hurting her own constituents. So for example, let me show you what her refusal 
to get rid of the filibuster or at least create a carve out to the filibuster at a minimum is doing to her own constituents. As Caitlin Cruz of Jezebel explains, Arizona can officially enforce a near total abortion ban that existed more than a decade before it would join the United States as its 48th member. On Friday, a state court judge in a southern Arizona county lifted an injunction allowing a 1901 abortion ban to go into effect while failing to clarify how this change will interact with dozens of anti-abortion laws already on the books. A version of this law was first passed in the territorial legislature back in 1864, but was amended in 1901. Arizona joined the union in 1912. When Roe v. Wade was decided in 1973, the courts dropped local litigation surrounding the law because of the Supreme Court decision. The law carries two to five years of prison time for anyone who provides, supplies, or administers to a pregnant woman or procures such woman to take any medicine, drugs, or substance, or uses or employs any instrument or other means, whatever, with intent thereby to procure the miscarriage of such woman. The law's only exception is a very narrow, very vague exception for life of the patient, literally stating, unless it is necessary to save her life, the ruling will likely be appealed. And just to be clear, this law provides no exceptions for rape and incest. Now, Kirsten Cinema today, she could get rid of laws like this by agreeing to at least create a special carve out to the filibuster so they can codify Roe v. Wade and make sure that women in her state are able to control their own bodies. But she's not doing that. She's saying, nope, sorry, rules are rules. And sometimes, you know, these children, they're going to want their civil rights, but you've got to withhold that from them. I mean, this is why she is universally loathed, but she did win the praise of Mitch McConnell, who said this about her. I've only known Kirsten for uh, four years, but she is, in my view, and I've told her this before, the most effective first-term senator I've seen in my time in the Senate. She is today what we have too few of in the Democratic Party, a genuine moderate and a deal maker. Yeah, there's too few Democrats like Kirsten Sinema, according to Mitch McConnell, the leader of the Republican Party. Again, just imagine during election season, a Republican going to an event like this with Chuck Schumer, praising him, praising how wonderful and, uh, you know, pragmatic Chuck Schumer is. It would never happen. But yet. Democrats are expected to not only meet Republicans halfway as they obstruct for years, but be overly reasonable to all of their demands and support their unpopular policies. It's ridiculous. So Kirsten Sinema is a terrible human being. She's opportunistic, and I genuinely hope that she does seek re-election uh, when she's up, uh, because I would like to see her get completely obliterated in a Democratic Party primary. I understand that it doesn't matter because she probably doesn't care about her reelection. And even if she runs and she loses, she's going to become a lobbyist because she has absolutely delivered to her donors on Wall Street. But either way, it'd be nice to feel the satisfaction of knowing that she gets landslided in a Democratic Party primary. So I would absolutely love to see that. But either way, she doesn't care because she's getting what she wants. And Republicans are very enthusiastic about her because she's delivering what they want. And that is delivering an obstruction of the Democratic Party's agenda. And she's learned from the best like Mitch McConnell, who she calls a friend. Just truly vomit-inducing, a cursed event that I uh, wish I could purge from my mind. Former Republican lawmaker Denver Riggleman 
has basically shed light on how extreme some Trump cult members are. And this former lawmaker describes how his own mom turned on him once he was critical of Donald Trump. Now, this is information that we're getting from an upcoming book release that I think is very transparently opportunistic, but we'll talk about that in a moment here. I want to get to what he says about his mom when she found out that he criticized Donald Trump. Zach Schoenfeld of The Hill writes, Denver Riggleman, a former GOP lawmaker from Virginia and House January 6th committee aide, wrote in this forthcoming book that his mom texted him saying she was sorry you were ever elected after the then-Republican lawmaker went on CNN to condemn QAnon. Savage. What will it take to wake you up, son? I love you so, but cannot stand by and listen to your elitist attitude and being praised by elitist journalists and Democrats. Riggleman's mother texted him. Congratulations, she said. You are now part of the swamp. <laughs> I'm sorry you were ever elected. Goddamn. You are officially a politician. I have cried over you, and my heart is broken by you. Riggleman wrote that the text came after CNN Jake Tapper interviewed him on October 14th of 2020, nearly two weeks after the Virginia Republican-sponsored resolution condemning QAnon that passed the House with 17 Republican no votes. I knew my mom and I were not on the same page politically, but this is something else, Ruhlman wrote. Any hope for a mostly normal relationship seemed dim. She was damn near disavowing me. Now, let's just put things into perspective here. This is a former GOP lawmaker, and his mom is also a Republican. But this goes to show you the differences between just standard, semi-moderate Republicans and Trump sycophants, who are also QAnon adjacent, if not outright full-blown QAnon subscribers here. So this is his own mom believing that her son is part of the swamp. Most parents, I'd argue, regardless of how corrupt their politician children are, they probably never believe that their children are part of the swamp, right? That cognitive dissonance is not going to allow them to admit that they raised a piece of shit. So, I mean, like Kirsten Cinema, there's no way her mom is thinking, wow, you know, I really hate that my daughter has sold her soul to Wall Street. I, I don't know that that would be the case. Same with Ted Cruz. I'm sure his parents love him, despite how weird he may be, which they won't admit. But this is an individual who's saying, no, 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 my own son is now corrupt. He's part of the swamp for criticizing a politician that I value more than him, my own flesh and blood. Now, there's a bit more details that I want to get into here because it seems as if his mom has a history of being an abusive piece of shit. The former Virginia congressman describes his mother in the book as being solidly Republican and religious. Shocker there. Riggleman wrote that she kicked him out of the house after he abandoned his Mormon mission, but they still stayed in touch afterward, and their relationship only improved when he unsuccessfully ran for Virginia governor in 2016. He later won a House seat in 2018, only to lose the Republican nomination two years later as controversy grew over his officiating of a same-sex wedding and more moderate voting record. This is in... Uh 2020, folks. In his final months in office, the former intelligence officer, Deep State, became an outspoken advocate against QAnon and Republican support for the conspiracy, including from Trump. My relationship with my mom made it through my break with her Mormon church, Riggleman wrote in his book. I wasn't sure if it could survive the Church of Trump. That's a sad statement. After their relationship soured, Riggleman wrote that he and his mom only reconnected when his sister's health took a turn for the worse, but the former lawmaker said he never told his mom about his work on the January 6th committee. 
Quote, if I can help even one person turn away from this fringe conspiracy culture or recognize Trump for the un-American grifter that he is, it would make everything worth it, Riggleman wrote. I'd be especially happy if that one person was my mom. You actually, believe it or not, don't have to associate with abusive family members. If you're younger, that's a different story. If you're economically attached to your parents, then you kind of have to abide by their rules while you're living under their roof because you could endanger yourself if you, for example, come out as gay or come out as a socialist and they don't like it. So you kind of have to play along with them. However, once you move out, once you're a grown-up, you don't have to put up with this abuse. And I feel like most people don't really acknowledge that even if they might feel it to their core. So I, for example, as a gay man, have had to cut off multiple members of my own family who has called me, you know, really terrible things because they are homophobic. And guess what? I'm much, much healthier and happier because they are no longer part of my life. So that to me is not something that I feel like I lost. I feel like I've gained something in terms of like better mental health by disassociating with these people and understand that this is a loss for them. Like if Riggleman said, okay, mom, I'm never going to see you again. She's the one who has to die alone now that her son isn't going to talk to her. So it's weird how this power dynamic exists where these abusive parents feel as if their children have to suck up to them when in actuality, as you grow older, you know, you become more lonely. You become, you know, an individual who I'm assuming most people logically want to be associating with their children and grandchildren. But, you know, your mom, if she's going to treat you like shit, cut her off. There's no need to kiss up to her. And the fact that, you know, she was willing to forgive you after you left the Mormon cult, but won't forgive you because you left the Trump cult, that says a, a lot about her. It says your mom is deranged. It speaks to her character as an individual. And I mean, drop her. You don't need her, Riggleman. I don't know his history as a Republican, but just the fact that he was willing to officiate a same-sex wedding tells me that at least socially, he is indeed more moderate when the moderate Republican is kind of like, you know, Bigfoot. You might see sightings once in a while, but those photos, if you look a little bit closer, they're usually fake. So they usually don't exist. I'm sure that this is like an economically conservative individual who doesn't care about, you know, protecting families on welfare, wants to cut social safety net. But either way, like if you're actually socially much more liberal, great. I want to encourage more Republicans to leave the Trump cult and stop being cowards and just to be more critical of Donald Trump. You know, Ted Cruz said something to the effect of, well, you know, the reason why most Republicans don't criticize Donald Trump is because we're afraid that he will criticize us. Yeah, but except for the party that complains about masculinity, shouldn't you be leading by example and not be cowards, not be afraid to criticize Donald Trump because he may push back against you. But of course not, because Donald Trump can end their careers like that if they disobey him. So as a result, they're all just like keeping their mouths shut so they can appease Daddy Trump. And it's really embarrassing. And I think that is quintessential beta male behavior. But I want to get to a different element of this story, and that is how sleazy it was for Riggleman to release this book. The January 6th committee is, I think, justifiably angry that he's using his inside information as an ex-staffer of the January 6th select committee to profit off of their investigation literally just one day before the final public hearing is set to take place. It is nakedly opportunistic for him to, on one hand, claim that Donald Trump is a grifter, and that's correct, but then release this book a day before the final January 6th committee. 
I mean, I don't know if he timed that, but to release it now, it feels disgusting. And he's not alone. There's so many journalists who will release devastating information about Donald Trump. And they save this information, don't release it to the public, and they withhold this because they want to gin up more controversy or headlines ahead of the release of their book. And that's so disgusting. That's so disgusting. So I don't like when people do this, but he's doing that. But regardless, I still want to talk about the story because I think it's interesting. And since we're on the subject of the final January 6th committee, well, that is going to air on Wednesday. And the committee is expected to release its final report, conclusions, and most importantly, recommendations. And there are reports that the committee might unanimously recommend that Trump be prosecuted by the Justice Department. So that is certainly something that you're going to want to pay attention to. So this is important and it feels really sleazy that you have this ex-staffer from the january 6th select committee trying to profit off of this panel i mean if you want to write a book in a couple of years okay not that big of a deal but to do it now before they release their final report you just you just look like a grifter an opportunist uh but either way sorry about your mom seems like she's a piece of shit riggleman should definitely disown her for his own well-being but either way uh, I don't really care about their family dynamic. I just want to talk about this because I think it really exposes how insane the Trump right is. Like, again, this is no normal political alliance. Trump has this cult of personality and people will sacrifice members of their own family if they're not loyal to Donald Trump. And that's the way that cults operate. If you leave the cult, you're oftentimes disowned, isolated. And the same type of dynamic, the same characteristics of traditional cults are being seen here. So I think it's absolutely fascinating and genuinely sad. Vanity Fair published an interesting analysis by Gabriel Sherman where he discusses what a potential DeSantis 2024 campaign would look like. And there's a lot of really interesting elements of this article, but the thing that really stood out to me was DeSantis's true feelings about Donald Trump. And spoiler alert, he is not keen on Donald Trump. Now, we've known for quite some time that Donald Trump is not a huge fan of Ron DeSantis, not necessarily because Ron DeSantis is a bad politician in Trump's eyes per se, but because Ron DeSantis obviously is kind of stepping on Trump's toes. Quote, Trump says, DeSantis is overrated, disloyal, and a know-nothing. And this is what a Trump friend told to Gabriel Sherman. Now, DeSantis hasn't really publicly condemned Donald Trump, but it turns out the feeling is mutual because DeSantis, according to an ex-DeSantis staffer, had some pretty strong words about Donald Trump. Sherman writes, DeSantis in private trashes Trump. Quote, he calls him a TV personality and a moron who has no business running for president, a former DeSantis staffer said. DeSantis tells donors that if he takes on Trump, he would launch a full frontal attack on his record and competence, according to a GOP source briefed on the conversations. Quote, DeSantis says the only way to beat Trump is to attack him head on. He says he would turn to Trump during a debate and say, why didn't you fire Fauci? You said you would build the wall, but there is no wall. Why is that? So that to me is really fascinating because I think that that strategy is the exact strategy that you need when going up against Donald Trump. I don't think that it's a foolproof strategy because Trump's base of support isn't necessarily driven by a base of people who are strictly ideological. This is a cult of personality, so Trump could easily deflect. But the problem here is that Trump 
is being put on the defensive. Now, the reason why Trump was so effective back in 2015 and 2016 is because he was the outsider. He was basically blasting the records of incumbent Republicans, and that was very effective. But now DeSantis is essentially going to emulate Trump's strategy and use it against him. And I think that if any strategy against Trump in particular is going to work, this is the strategy that's going to work. Now, what matters, I think, is that this comes from DeSantis. If, for example, Jeb Bush tried this strategy, I don't necessarily think that that's going to work because he doesn't have the clout and the credibility and the political capital that Ron DeSantis has. DeSantis has spent years proving that he's a Trump loyalist, even if behind the scenes that's all just kind of fake, right? But DeSantis has taken on this mantle of the next Trump in a multitude of ways. He's not necessarily creating a new form of Trumpism rather than he's creating his own path of American urbanism, you know, emulating the Hungarian prime minister. So I think that DeSantis, by creating this whole persona around him, who is really not afraid to own the libs and whatnot, he can perhaps be one of the few people who would successfully be able to institute this strategy against Donald Trump. So I would absolutely love to see DeSantis and Trump in a head-to-head -head debate. They're both terrible, but if these two individuals who are bad politicians and objectively bad people, I think, rip each other apart, that I think is good for the country overall. Now, here's one thing that I have to mention about this article. I absolutely hate the disingenuity because these politicians behind the scenes, they feel one way. And I think that most of us suspected that DeSantis didn't necessarily uh, respect Trump. I think that most of us suspect that most Republicans don't actually respect Trump. I mean, let's be clear here. There are the tried and true Kool-Aid drinkers, the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world, the Paul Gosars of the world. These individuals, I do believe that they are loyal to Trump in reality, right? Not behind the scenes talking trash about him like DeSantis. I think they actually do believe what they're selling. But with a lot of Republicans, Ted Cruz, Ron DeSantis, they're so fake. They pretend as if they love Donald Trump, they'll defend him publicly, but behind the scenes, we see what they're saying. And there's something so inherently gross about that. Now, that's not to say that like normal people are always going to be super assertive. I mean, we've all been at these jobs where we want to trash talk our manager, but we don't do that, right? But there's this extra layer of phoniness to politicians that just rubs me the wrong way. The fact that DeSantis feels this strongly about Donald Trump, he thinks he's a moron who shouldn't be running for president. I mean, say that. Why are you withholding your feelings? And we all know that that's kind of a rhetorical question. He's withholding those feelings because he wants to unleash on Trump at the best time. Now, he is kind of walking this fine line where he's trying to cultivate this persona for himself, and the article gets into this. But at the same time, he doesn't want to instigate a direct confrontation with Donald Trump ahead of the primary because he knows that that could hurt him. He wants to kind of ambush Donald Trump on a debate stage. So overall, this is really fascinating. I have no love for either of these two goons, but if they're going to rip each other apart, I think that by and large, that's a net positive for the country and for democracy. So, as many of you know by now, Congressman Matt Gates decided to launch a Twitch channel so he can begin streaming in order to, I guess, red pill younger generations. The problem with him is that he lacks charisma and he has nothing interesting to say. And as a result, his first Twitch stream was a complete flop. Now, when I say flop, you're probably thinking, well, he's a member of Congress, so he probably averaged about 2,000 viewers, 3,000 viewers, not that much, but certainly more than anyone else can get, right? Um, no, no, no. <laughs> Let me explain this to you. 
his peak viewer count was wait for it six six people <laughs> just six people at his peak tuned in to see congressman matt gates any one of you can fare better than matt gates on your very first twitch stream all you have to do is tell your friends and family to tune in and you can average more viewers than his peak it's genuinely just hilarious to see this because these bombastic politicians who throw a lot of red meat to the gop base they think that they are able to galvanize people they think that they have genuinely interesting things to say but when it comes to actually getting an audience well that's a lot more difficult than they believe unless that audience is captive unless we have to listen to them because they're a member of congress and they're on television or something like that but what did he talk about why was this such a flop because in the event he was talking about something interesting i mean the viewer numbers would tick up but what was he talking about? Well, as Vice News explains, the Florida congressman launched his stream Thursday with a 30-minute ramble about the January 6th Capitol riot with Darren Beatty, an ex-Trump speechwriter. In a live recording of Gates's Firebrand podcast, the two went on about Ray Epps, the man at the center of a right-wing conspiracy claiming undercover FBI agents led the mob of Trump supporters into the Capitol on January 6th, known as the Fedsurrection. The January 6th Congressional Committee concluded Epps was just a guy from Arizona, with no ties to the government at all. The stream ended with Gates bashing the defunding of police, wokeism in public schools, and blaming the squad of four progressive congresswomen for just about everything. Hmm. I mean, that sounds riveting. I can't imagine why people wouldn't want to tune in to that. I just got to point out, it's so bizarre to me that so many Republican politicians have podcasts. Ted Cruz has a podcast. Marjorie Taylor Greene has a podcast. Matt Gates has a podcast. And now he's streaming on Twitch. Stay in your lane. Just because you're a politician, just because you were successful politically, doesn't mean that you have the capability of holding an audience, okay? You are the type of person that can get good headlines, good quick sound bits. But to hold an audience for 30 minutes, you have to be engaging. You have to provide people with interesting things. And very clearly, Matt Gates isn't doing that. And what I love is that most of the viewers who were there, they were not fans of Matt Gates. In fact, they were trolling him. So let's go to this first graphic here. And you can see what I mean by that. So you see a lot of uh, Pepe images with the word cock. We see Shrek. And uh, user Vile asks, Congressman Gates, what is your favorite way to traffic minors across state lines for sex? And then <laughs> Zero chimes in saying, good question. And then we have another Pepe cock. And then moving on, I had to actually blur this image because you are looking at a phallic-shaped image. And it is what you think it is. Now, Lard says, are you guys worried about your kids driving home during rush hour? It can get kind of crazy out there. Thankfully, brave folks like Matt are fighting to keep our roads safe. Google Matt Gates minor traffic to find out more. So good. Uh, this person says, uh, Matt Gates hates adults. Um, I've, I just got to point out their name is Dick Hardy. Very clever. We see an Among Us character with a uh, full-blown erection asking, you want to suck? And then we see some comments here. Um, you see Hassan emojis. You see Matt Gates is a pedo by Jared B. Lazy Lightning 73 says, I honestly didn't think it was possible for you to become any more creepy than you already are. But then I learned you joined Twitch one day after Bloomberg published a report about how child predators are using Twitch to track and engage kids and teens. Oh, it's it's so bad. He's getting so roasted. Nobody wants your sex trafficking bitch ass on Twitch. Is Joel Greenberg's name allowed? Turns out it is. Paid $900 to a convicted sex trafficker. 
I mean, it goes on and on, as you can see. Just absolutely beautiful. Oh, love it. Now, he thought that because he's a congressman, because he's Matt Gates, and he's been successful politically, and he knows some really powerful, popular people, he would just automatically find success on Twitch. But no, being a successful streamer on Twitch is actually very difficult because believe it or not, it takes talent to be able to hold an audience. You have to have charisma. You have to be engaging. As Greg Grazioso of The Independent explains, growing a community on Twitch is not easy. According to data from Sully Gnome and Twitch Tracker, the top 1% of Twitch streams have an average of approximately 20 concurrent viewers during their streams. The users pulling in tens of thousands of viewers each stream are the platform's top 0.1% and account for around 74% of the total watch time on the platform. So it's not not easy to be successful on Twitch. Now, YouTube is a different story because they've tweaked the algorithm so that way authoritative sources, i.e. news organizations like MSNBC and even Fox News, they're prioritized in the algorithm. So back in 2014, 2015, those of us who were doing political commentary, we would actually get more views than Fox News, than CNN on any given subject. But fast forward to today, CNN gets millions and millions of views. Fox News gets tens of thousands of views on every single video and they beat us, but that's because the algorithm has been tweaked. But on Twitch, where the algorithm is more open, certainly, at least from my experience, you actually have to have talent. They're not pushing authoritative sources. They're not pushing politicians and celebrities, right? You can use your celebrity and your large platform that already exists to certainly, you know, gain more viewers, but the algorithm won't automatically do that for you. So on Twitch, you've got to do good. And Matt Gates just doesn't have it, but I certainly hope that he keeps trying. I've actually followed Matt Gates, so I am one of his uh, less than 2,000 followers. And I will enthusiastically tune into his next live stream because, you know, I, I'm not saying I'm going to troll, but I just want to see what he has to say. You know, I, I'm not going to troll. I'm not that kind of a person. You all know me. I'm just going to tune in and uh, hear him out. And if I happen to see some emotes that I like or some um, Shrek memes that I like, I might post them, no promises, but um, yeah, there you have it. Matt Gates is a flop on Twitch. Keep trying, brother. Get good. Why are people reluctant on the Republican side to criticize Donald Trump? It's, it's a number of things. Number one, unlike many people in politics, if someone criticizes him, he turns around and punches them in the face. I mean, it's not complicated, and you have, I saw a lot of my colleagues, I saw meetings where he'd get up and and different Republican senators would criticize me. He spent the whole meeting just like slamming him with a stick. That people respond to incentives. People notice that. That was GOP Senator Ted Cruz speaking at the Texas Tribune Festival in Austin, Texas on Saturday, explaining why most Republicans are too afraid to criticize Donald Trump because they're cowards and they are beta males, not his words, mine, obviously. Um, so Ted Cruz is going to kind of explain his own strategy. Now, we all know that Ted Cruz is the same way. He's doing exactly what these hypothetical Republicans he speaks about does, but he claims that he has a little bit of a different strategy, not necessarily based on cowards but instead based on principle. So this is how he deals with Donald Trump, according to him. I disagree with a lot of the things Donald Trump says. And I made a decision that I wasn't going to be giving color commentary on MSNBC for every tweet or every statement that was obviously indefensible. I think that's the right balance. And I'll tell you, for any Republican, that was a complicated decision. How do you deal with Trump? I made the decision when he does things that are good and praiseworthy, I will praise him. 
And when he says things I disagree with, I'm just not going to engage in the day-to-day color commentary. I'm going to leave it. There will be plenty of people on every TV station hyperventilating. And I actually think the American people grew kind of numb to it. Because if you look at the media for four years, everything he said and done did was World War III. It was like the most unbelievable thing until the next day. I think people got tired of that. I think you see that today where the media is still obsessed with it. I mean, it's because he's a threat to democracy who's planning on running for president again, so he's kind of newsworthy, but I love this framing from Ted Cruz here. It's exactly what you'd expect from a sniveling little weasel like Ted Cruz. So he first claimed in the first video we watched that most Republicans are too afraid to criticize Donald Trump head on because he'll punch them in the nose. But Ted Cruz, however, it's not that he's afraid. It's that this is coming from a place of principle right? Ted Cruz knows that the media, they want to see GOP on GOP violence, so he's not going to satiate their hunger for anti-Trump attacks. Rather, he's just going to, you know, remain silent and he'll talk about Donald Trump when he wants to praise Donald Trump. It's not because he's a beta male cuck. It's not because he's too afraid to criticize Donald Trump like the other Republicans he was referring to. It's because he's principled. Sure. Totally believe you, Ted Cruz. This this is coming from the guy, let me remind you, who uh, phone banged for Donald Trump in 2016 after Trump called his wife ugly, after Trump humiliated Ted Cruz and dragged him publicly for months. Ted Cruz did this. So if you are trying to convince us, Ted Cruz, that your refusal to criticize Donald Trump publicly comes from a place of principle, nobody believes that, even in Republicans don't believe that. Every single person in that room did not believe you. Look, I think that there are some individuals, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Louis Gohmert, Paul Gosar, they genuinely like Donald Trump. They've drank the Kool-Aid, so they believe what he says. They're picking up what he's putting down. They love everything that he says. Ted Cruz, however, I know, we all know he can't stand Donald Trump. So him withholding criticism, he does that not because of principle, obviously. He does that for purposes of political expediency. Deep down, Ted Cruz loathes Donald Trump. Ted Cruz has dreamed about being president now for decades, and Trump is the one person that stood between Ted Cruz and the 2016 Republican Party nomination for president. So Ted Cruz... He has a vendetta against Donald Trump. The only reason why he's become a MAGA chud Republican and fear mongers about the 2020 election being stolen is because he knows that Trump has realigned the Republican Party. You can't win in a GOP primary. You can't be a successful Republican unless you play all of Trump's greatest hits. So if that means you've got to swallow your pride and say things that are obviously untrue. Well, that's what Ted Cruz has to do. He knows this. We all know this. But Ted Cruz, he's one of the fakest politicians. So it is astounding to me that he thinks that anyone believes what he's saying. This is one of the most smarmy, disingenuous politicians in the history of the United States. He's worse than Hillary Clinton and Dr. Oz. But yet he wants us to believe that he keeps his mouth shut, not because he's a coward, but because he's principled. I just don't buy it. So, um... Yeah, Ted Cruz is a coward, and I'm just glad that he's admitting this. Not that we needed him to admit this to know that, but it's just funny to see him say it. Yeah, basically, we're all cowards. Not his words, mine, but I mean, that's what he's saying there, effectively. So, um, hilarious. This is the Republican Party in a nutshell. They're all pathetic cowards who oftentimes don't say what they actually think about Trump, who is demonstrably dumb and dangerous for U.S. democracy.
Senator Bernie Sanders said some really interesting things in a new interview with CBS. And as much as I'd love to show you the video footage, unfortunately, CBS is very strict when it comes to copyrights on YouTube videos. So I've got the next best thing for you, an article for The Hill where he talks about, wait for it, a potential 2024 presidential run. So The Hill writes, Senator Bernie Sanders on Monday said he hadn't yet decided whether he will make another bid for the White House. That's a big, you know, I haven't made that decision, Sanders said on CBS Mornings. Asked what he thinks about a potential re-election bid for Biden, Sanders insisted that's his decision. Okay, now I've talked about this before, and I think that whether or not Bernie Sanders decides to run is contingent on whether or not Biden chooses to seek a second term. If Biden chooses to step down after the midterms, most likely, then I do believe that Bernie Sanders will most likely run. Now, I've talked about this before, and I would support Bernie Sanders, enthusiastically so. However, I'm not a, as high on the idea of Bernie 2024 20, as I was a couple of months ago. And that's because... I just don't think that he can win a Democratic Party primary. And I say that not necessarily because I don't think that he has the correct policies. I think that by far he is the most principled progressive that we have. Like he's the only choice who I think is electorally viable and has the record of being consistently progressive on a lot of issues. The problem is that Bernie Sanders just refuses to go on the offensive, right? We saw back in 2020, he was too nice to Joe Biden. He notoriously said repeatedly, Joe Biden is a friend of mine, would not attack his record, would not call him out for his flaws. And I think that that cost him the election. Now, you can blame Obama and the Democratic Party establishment, right? You can blame Obama for convincing all of the moderates to drop out and get behind Joe Biden. You can blame Elizabeth Warren for refusing to back out and endorse Bernie Sanders in order to increase the chances of a progressive winning. But at the end of the day, I think that Bernie Sanders' fatal flaw was not calling out his Democratic Party colleagues. And I think that that cost him. It cost all of us. And I just can't at this moment envision Bernie Sanders changing up that strategy. He's just, he's too nice, right? It's perhaps his greatest attribute, but simultaneously, at least when it comes to politics, one of his biggest flaws. And I just can't see him making it through a Democratic Party primary as ruthless as the media is, as ruthless as other Democrats will be to him if he doesn't actually get more vicious. And two times now we've seen that he's just not willing to go hard enough on Democrats. So I don't want to put myself and my viewers in this predicament where we get our hopes up once again, only to see all of our hopes and dreams crushed. It's just a lot emotionally to go through. It's a lot of money to invest in a movement. I mean, I, I chipped in $27 per month. I encouraged my viewers to send money to him whenever they had a couple of extra bucks to spare. I just, I, I hesitate to go through that again, knowing that Bernie isn't going to do what is needed to actually win. It's tough. So, uh, I mean, you all probably are thinking, what the hell? Because I was really high on this idea a few months ago, because who else can run? And I still think that there's not really anyone on the level of Bernie Sanders. But still, at the same time, it's just hard to get excited when you know he's not going to be strong enough. He's not going to be aggressive enough. But having said that, though, to contradict myself, if he were to run, I would support him again, enthusiastically so, but I think that this time I would temper my expectations knowing that Bernie just isn't going to do what's needed to win. Now, there's another portion of this interview that I wanted to touch on here because he responded to criticism about his age and Biden's age. And 
I agree with what he said, despite admittedly kind of being concerned about his age myself. He said, look, this is what I think. You can't categorize everybody. You're different than everybody, you know? We're all different. We've got to look at the individual. But what I think we do, guys, is we look too much at race, at gender, at age. What does somebody stand for? What are their views? Do you agree with them, Sanders said on CBS? Quote, and obviously, you want people who are competent, capable, have the energy, I mean, my God, to be president of the United States requires an enormous amount of energy, but I would say, first of all, take a look at what people stand for. And we don't do that enough. We're too much into personality. Now, on that note, I absolutely agree with him. I'll admit that it worries me to have these old candidates run. So if you have, for example, a Joe Biden against a Ron DeSantis in 2024, I think that his age is going to be a vulnerability like it or not. I think that if you have a Bernie Sanders against someone who isn't equally as old like a Donald Trump, despite him having good populist policies and a winning message, I think that his age will be used against him. And the media certainly will weaponize his age against him. I mean, we saw the way that they did that in 2020, even though you had older candidates like Joe Biden. Now, that's not to say that Biden wasn't criticized because of his age, but Bernie Sanders he really got the brunt of that because, you know, they had other reasons to attack him. Bernie Sanders is a threat to the donor class, right? So I agree with him. I think that we have to prioritize the policy above the personality. However, I don't think that the Democratic Party, their base in particular, agrees with me on that. I think that they want somebody who's going to give them the feels. I think that they want somebody who's young, who's charismatic, who has a good resume, and I hate to say this, but I think that the Democratic Party base would end up supporting someone like Pete Buttigieg, who isn't really substantive. I mean, comparatively speaking, he's more substantive than most Republicans, obviously. But in terms of like comparing him to Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders is just policy focused, whereas Pete Buttigieg, he has a lot of fluff. There's a lot of platitudes to the way that he speaks. So I hate that Democratic Party voters would probably opt for someone like that. But again, we don't know. It's a little bit early to focus on that. But either way, getting back to this idea of Bernie running in 2024, I would support him, but I'm not going to get my hopes up this time because I know that Bernie Sanders is too nice to do what is needed to be done to crush his opponents. They're not going to pay him that same courtesy. Even Elizabeth Warren was ruthless and attacked not just Bernie Sanders, tried to smear him as a sexist, but she attacked his supporters saying they were super aggressive, which is just such a low blow. But it's going to happen. And this is part of politics. It's a dog eat dog game. And if Bernie Sanders isn't going to play the game on the level that they're playing it, then he's kind of unilaterally disarming and harming himself and his movement by extension. So I would support him with reservations because I don't think anyone else is going to be as good as Bernie Sanders. But in the event there was a progressive that was more aggressive that came along, I may consider supporting them over Bernie Sanders because I just think he's too nice to win. That's my honest thoughts. So, um, yeah, we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, but Bernie may run again in 2024, and it gives me hope for sure. But at the same time, the more that I think this through, the more that I think there's got to be somebody else who's more aggressive than Bernie Sanders with the policy substance. But I just, I don't know.
would that woman who decided to have an abortion, which would be considered an illegal abortion, be charged with murder? Okay, let's go back to the basic question there. Is that a human being? Is that a little boy or girl? If it is, it deserves equal protection on the law. So you're saying yes? Yes, I am. If it's a human being, if, if it's an American citizen there, a little baby, I don't care what, what nationality it is, it deserves equal rights before the law. You just listened to a 2019 WITF radio interview featuring Doug Mastriano, who, as you all know, may be the next governor of Pennsylvania, which is terrifying. Now, at the time of that interview, he was the lead sponsor on legislation that would ban abortion at the six-week mark, which is when most women don't even know that they're pregnant. But as you can tell, this individual is as extreme as you can possibly be when it comes to the issue of abortion, and not much has changed since 2019 because he just said this last week. The issue of life, as Ronald Reagan delineated in 1984, he goes, uh, in this whole debate, still the same, is that it doesn't seem like we're talking much about the baby anymore. And so uh, we, we are still talking about life. It's the single most important issue, I think, in our lifetime. So just a little bit of a pro tip, whenever you hear a forced birther say that abortion is the most important issue to them, understand what you're getting yourself into if you support this individual. He is unquestionably going to crack down on abortion. And whether or not as governor he actually tries to criminalize abortion to the extent that women get tried for murder, that's a different story. But he absolutely is planning to take aim at women's reproductive rights. As Jezebel explains, he told the Pro-Life Coalition of Pennsylvania last week that if elected, he looks forward to signing into law either a ban on abortion after six weeks or a ban in the second trimester. We can fulfill and achieve most of our desires in protecting life when we win on 8 November, he said. Now, currently in Pennsylvania, you can get an abortion up until either the 24th or 25th week. But to scale it back to six weeks, you're effectively banning abortion in that state. And for him to say second trimester, absolutely don't believe him at all. Again, remember, at the beginning of this video, you heard him say that women should be charged with murder because he believes to get an abortion means you're killing a child. Now, keep in mind, we're talking about zygotes here. Most abortions happen within that first 10-week period. So to claim that a clump of cells effectively is tantamount to a child and to dispose of said clump of cells is tantamount to murder, this person is clearly deranged and should be nowhere near power. And this isn't the only issue where he's an extremist. Doug Maestriano is also a 2020 election truther, one of the largest in the MAGA movement. Of course, he's been endorsed by Donald Trump, and he's also a Christian nationalist, meaning God is above government. In other words, if there are constitutional or state and federal laws that may block a Republican from imposing some theocratic law, well, that doesn't matter because God is superior to all man-made laws. That's the individual who could become the governor of Pennsylvania. And I'd be remiss to not point out that the reason why he was able in part to win the GOP primary in the state of Pennsylvania is because Democrats in their infinite wisdom thought that by propping him up and helping him win the GOP primary, they'd have a better chance at beating him in November. And as Politico explains in this article here, there were other Democrats who thought that this strategy was absolutely reckless and unethical. But yet, here we are, like it or not, he is the Republican Party's nominee. And I think that as horrible as he is, he is the perfect representation of the modern Republican Party.
They are morally bankrupt, and all that they want to do is control other people. When it comes to women's reproductive rights, they want women to have no control, and they want to criminalize abortions as much as they can. But it's not just women who they're trying to control. All across the country, in states like Virginia, Florida, Texas, they're trying to restrict freedom of expression when it comes to gender identity, and they're trying to curtail civil rights and civil liberties. So this party that tries to portray itself as, you know, a party of small government, they want the largest government possible. The only small elements about the GOP's governing philosophy is that they want governments small enough to fit in your bedrooms and in women's uteruses, if I you know, am able to co uh, quote an old cliche from the 2010s. But that's where we are. Doug Maestriano in 2019, just a couple of years ago, said women should be charged with murder if they get abortions. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton has done everything that he possibly can do as Attorney General to criminalize abortions. It's not good enough that Texas already bans abortions after six weeks, which effectively bans almost all abortions because most women don't even know that they're pregnant at that time. But he is trying to further criminalize abortions and he's trying to block nonprofits from assisting women who try to seek out-of-state abortions. Now, as a result, said nonprofits are suing him to try to stop him from doing just that. The problem is that in the midst of this lawsuit, they're trying to subpoena him and he's desperately trying to avoid being served. Now, you might have seen the headlines about how he ran away from the server to try to avoid getting subpoenaed. The headlines really don't do this story justice. This is genuinely bizarre. What he did to avoid being served I mean, it just speaks to how craven and desperate Republicans are and how often they're willing to run away from their own actions and then subsequently play the victim every single time. So his server, uh, Ernesto Martin Herrera, says that he spoke to a woman at Paxton's residence named Angela. And, you know, he knocks on the door. She answers and says, look, he's on a phone call right now. He can't speak. So Ernesto waits around. So an hour passes and nothing happens until a black Chevy Tahoe pulls up. Then 20 minutes pass and Ernesto finally sees Paxton again. And then this happened, quote, I walked up the driveway approaching Mr. Paxton and called him by his name. As soon as he saw me and heard me call his name out, he turned around and ran back inside the house through the same door in the garage. Herrera wrote in the sworn affidavit, Angela Paxton then exited the house, got inside a Chevrolet truck in the driveway, started it and opened the doors. Quote, a few minutes later, I saw Mr. Paxton ran from the door inside the garage towards the rear door behind the driver's side. Herrera wrote, I approached the truck and loudly called him by his name and stated that I had court documents for him. Mr. Paxton ignored me and kept heading for the truck. And he ultimately fled the scene. to behave in this way to flee the scene is just really bizarre considering you are the attorney general for the state of texas now why did the literal attorney general behave in such a bizarre manner well, of course, because he's the victim and he was terrified. He tweeted out, It's clear that the media wants to drum up another controversy involving my work as attorney general. So they're attacking me for having the audacity to avoid a stranger lingering outside my home and showing concern about the safety and well-being of my family. Mm, okay, so you were afraid. Except Ernesto literally told Angela, I'm assuming that's his wife, but he doesn't know. So he said that the woman who identified herself said her name was Angela. But either way, he told you he was trying to talk to you. He had a manila envelope in his hand, I'm guessing. If you put two and two together, this is the attorney general of the state, 
perhaps he's serving you. Why would you assume that this person is uh, out to get you? I don't think that he actually believes this. I think that this is his excuse that he's using because it looks bad for the attorney general to flee from somebody who's trying to serve him with a subpoena. So what does he do? Oh, he claims he's the victim. I mean, Jesus, Republicans, even when they are very clearly in the wrong, they absolutely unquestionably always portray themselves as the victims. Now, lucky for Ken Paxton, this lawsuit isn't likely going to go anywhere. The Texas Tribune explains, later on Monday, this is after he ran away from the process server, Paxton filed two requests, a motion to quash the subpoena and another to seal the certificates of service, which included the affidavit from process server. His lawyers argued that the server loitered at the attorney general's home for over an hour, repeatedly shouted at him and accosted Paxton and his wife. U.S. District Judge Robert Pittman granted both requests early Tuesday, hours after the affidavit had been published. Paxton has been under indictment for securities fraud for seven years and faces a whistleblower lawsuit from former top deputies who accused him of abuse of office. Paxton has denied wrongdoing. Well, of course. So I just love the way that they frame this. Republicans are the most deceitful people, the most dishonest people in the entire world. You tell him to wait because he's busy or you imply that he should wait because he's busy, he can't come to the door right now because he's on the phone and he waits and then you accuse him of loitering. This is a process server. I mean, what's suspicious about that? This is the attorney general and you're saying, oh, no, 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 this is completely unacceptable. And a judge is like, yeah, yeah, okay, believable. I just, I don't know what to say about this. I, I mean, it's not necessarily surprising to me, but Republicans are so shady. Uh, they don't care about law and order and... Yeah, they're willing to literally run and drive away, flee the scene from a process server, all to avoid being subpoenaed. It's just predictable, but I can't not talk about stories like this because it just shows you that they're fucking hypocrites. They cry law and order. They claim that Democrats have no respect for the rule of law. And they do things like this. And Ken Paxton is not alone here because Republicans are avoiding subpoenas from the January 6th committee, for example. And, you know, this is just what they do now. So, you know, he's lucky enough to have a judge side with him. But it's just embarrassing that he, like, went to that length to run away, knowing that this would probably become a story, but not caring. Just fleeing, having his wife bring up a getaway vehicle and fleeing. <laughs> it's just... This sums up American politics in 2022, folks. Virginia's Department of Education, under the guidance of their Republican governor, Glenn Youngkin, is proposing sweeping new guidelines for all 133 school districts throughout the state that are going to endanger the lives of trans and non-binary students. These new guidelines include blocking students from social transition, meaning that they're not allowed to express themselves through gender. It will also stop them from using school facilities and bathrooms of their current gender and force them to use the bathrooms of the sex that they were assigned at birth. It required teachers to out queer students to their parents and also allow teachers to purposefully misgender trans and non-binary students, even if parents give them consent to use their trans child's preferred pronouns. It's draconian, it's anti-freedom, and it's bigoted. But thankfully, students across the state are fighting back hard, and today they staged walkouts across the state, and thousands of students made their voices heard and let it be known that this is not going to be tolerated. Let's watch. Trans rights are human rights! 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 
has been trans since the seventh grade. And with this new legislation that they've passed, I'm scared that I'm not going to be able to go home. That my parents are going to kick me out because people are, it's okay to out me. My parents know, but they're not supportive. They don't call me by my name. They don't use proper pronouns. And I understand that it's a general difference, generational difference, but it's still not okay. None of this is okay. Another way for them to push out their political views onto students and the school system just to gain conservative voters. This isn't helping Rules require transgender students to use bathrooms that correspond to their sex assigned at birth. They also require schools to get parental permission before making official changes to a child's name or pronoun. You know, watching that gave me hope because it is evident that the kids are all right. They're going to be okay. And I loved hearing their stories there, explaining how articulately so at that age, you know, it's not okay that their parents misgender them. This is not okay. They're being used. They know that they're being used by the governor as political bait just to score a few points among their conservative bigoted base and it's not okay and they're taking action and i love to see thousands of students in solidarity stand up for their trans and non-binary colleagues i think that this is so important to see now i've got a tweet from journalist jill palermo who adds press is not allowed to cover today's walkouts against the state's anti-transgender policies at eight prince william county high schools this morning but here's what we can see from public property hundreds of kids walk out at cd hilton high school at about 9 a.m so even when they try to hide it these kids are coming out in such large numbers that you can't not hear what they're saying here. Now, what Glenn Youngkin and the Virginia Department of Education is doing, it's not just immoral and unethical and bigoted. It also is very likely illegal because as Brett Wilkins of Common Dreams explains, legal experts say Youngkin's policies likely violate federal and state laws. In an interview last week with the Washington Post, employment and civil rights attorney Joshua Ehrlich said that the governor is trying to pick a political fight by attacking trans students, but his model policies are in conflict with recent court filings which have determined that discrimination against transgender individuals is illegal discrimination on the basis of sex. In Bostock v. Clayton County, for example, conservative U.S. Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch, an appointee of former President Donald Trump, wrote for the majority that it is clear that the 1964 Civil Rights Act prohibits employer discrimination against LGBTQ plus people. In another decision, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit ruled that a transgender boy could use the boys' restrooms in his school, a case the Supreme Court declared declined to cure on appeal. So even with conservative evangelicals dominating the U.S. court system, they're still losing when it comes to this particular issue because it's so transparently bigoted and transphobic and discrimination on the basis of sex that they can't uphold these laws with a straight face and claim that they care about the constitution so in order to at least have this facade that they care about the constitution and law and order judges are striking down these transphobic laws and for good reason and another question is how do you even enforce some of these guidelines that the governor and the department of, of education in virginia are trying to enact because think about this if you are requiring trans students to use the bathroom that aligns with their sex that they were assigned at birth how are you going to enforce that? Are you going to just 
police them every time they go to the bathroom? And how do you even know what their biological sex is? You don't know who is and isn't trans. So are you going to be doing these genital checks on students? I mean, do you understand how this can lead to really disgusting implementations here? How do you determine who is and isn't a real girl or real boy? You can't. So these policies, they're not just unethical and potentially illegal, but they're also largely unenforceable. So all this is, is Glenn Youngkin throwing red meat to the base ahead of an election, using students, using children as a political tool. And that is incredibly disgusting. Now, it's not just students, thankfully, who are pushing back. It's the residents of Virginia in droves who are pushing back because these policies won't be implemented until after a 30-day public comment period. And within the first 24 hours, you love to see it, more than 20,000 comments were submitted, most of them opposing the State Department of Education's new policy directives. So it seems as if in Virginia, this is going to be where residents take a stand. I mean, this is really disgusting for them to continuously use trans people as their target, as their go-to political target, so they can score cheap points. Why don't these Republicans actually try doing something different? Perhaps, rather than demonizing trans people, maybe you appeal to them. Because, in theory, conservatism isn't inherently, at least economic conservatism, isn't inherently something that every single trans person is going to reject. Perhaps you have a wealthier trans person that might be receptive to, you know, the conservative ideology of trickle-down economics. Like, you can actually try appealing to these people rather than demonizing them. But that's not what the GOP is trying to do. They don't have an economic message. They don't have a real agenda that's policy-based and substantive. So they do things like this instead, where they try to ban LGBTQ plus books from schools and introduce these policy directives that isolate and demonize trans and non-binary youth. But thankfully, it's starting to blow up in their faces and you absolutely love to see it. Today at the White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition, and Health, President Biden thanked a bipartisan coalition of lawmakers who helped him craft an ambitious plan to end hunger in the United States by 2030. Now, among the GOP lawmakers who helped him with this proposal included the late Jackie Walorski, an Indiana congresswoman who tragically died in a car accident along with three other individuals back in August. Now, during the conference, as I stated, Joe Biden thanked the individuals who were associated with this plan, including Jackie Walorski, of course, but he seemingly forgot that she had died when he was thanking who we're all assuming was indeed her. This is bad, but take a look at what he had to say. And I want to thank all of you here for including bipartisan elected officials like Representative Governor, Senator Braun, Senator Booker, Representative Jackie, are you here? Where's Jackie? I didn't think she was, she was going to be here to help make this a reality. Yikes. That was not Good. When I was watching this, it was like a slow motion train wreck for the first time when I saw it. Just, oh my God, no, no. And he, he's just not stopping. He says, where's Jackie? And he like looks around the room. <laughs> Look, nope, not going to laugh. That's terrible. It's not funny at all. I can't believe he did that. I cannot believe that he did that. It's not like he didn't know about her death because when it happened, he released a statement talking about how shocked and saddened he was by her tragic death. But for him to, on a stage, say, where's Jackie? After she died, 
I'll just say this. The uh, allegations that he's in cognitive decline, not going to get any uh, quieter after this, we should say. Just, whew, that's a, that's a big yikes, right? Now, to end on a more positive note, I appreciate the overall spirit, I guess we'll call it, of this particular conference put on by the White House because it is an ambitious goal to end hunger by 2030. So let's talk about the plan. What is it? So the plan includes proposals for expanding the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, introducing coverage of medically tailored meals to Medicare, moving labels to the front of food packages, encouraging the food industry to lower sodium and sugar, and expanding nutrition research. Many of Mr. Biden's proposals are also hardly guaranteed to be enacted. Some can be accomplished through regulatory measures, Biden administration officials said, but others will require legislation from Congress. So to be clear, this is nothing more than an outline, things that should be done, a policy wish list if we do want to end hunger as a country by 2030. And um, just based on the makeup of Congress, I don't believe that they want to do that. Having said that, though, I think it's important for him to do this nonetheless, because raising the salience of this issue as president to use your bully pulpit for something positive like this to shine a light on an issue like this i think that that does indeed matter but ultimately he doesn't get credit for this from me at least until we start to see some of these goals enacted codified right but i mean this conference was kind of undermined the message that he wanted to get out was undermined by the fact that he forgot that Jackie Walorski had died. I just don't, I don't know what to say. How do you deal with him if you're one of his handlers? How do you recover from that? That is incredibly embarrassing and will unquestionably be one of the worst, most embarrassing gaffes of his entire presidency, but he still has a couple of years, so who knows what else he'll do. But just to ask where a dead congresswoman is at a conference when you're trying to thank her, Oh, it's just, it's so bad. It's so bad. I cannot believe he did that. I'm still in shock watching this. Holy shit. Biden, you've got to get it together. Like, they need to not let him go off script. Have a really strict script that he follows. Have him in front of a teleprompter every single time. You have to avoid things like this. That is just, oh, that is, that is not a good look. A couple of weeks ago on the show, we talked about Joe Manchin's dirty deal. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with what that is, essentially, in an effort to get Manchin to support the Inflation Reduction Act, Democratic Party leadership promised Joe Manchin that they would include a provision within the next must-pass budget bill that would allow for accelerated permitting of fossil fuel projects, including the Mountain Valley Pipeline which he's trying to get passed in his home state of Virginia. Now, the reason why they wanted to include this in must-pass legislation is because they know that you can't get members of Congress, especially progressives, to vote for it unless they were forced to do that. So, as a result, Manchin was trying to get this passed, and there was growing opposition from progressives, from activists, but also from Republicans who didn't like Joe Manchin's provision because they thought that his permitting provision wasn't as good, wasn't a big enough giveaway to fossil fuel donors. So he held a press conference essentially condemning everyone, progressives, re Republicans, for engaging in what he called revenge politics, which was incredibly petulant. And 
Today, we are learning that he is officially taking the L and progressives and environmental activists and to be fair, Republicans too, have won because Bloomberg's Eric Wasson tweets out, Senator Manchin throws in the towel, asks Schumer to remove energy permitting from the spending bill, doesn't have the votes. In other words, we won. So to be clear, the reason why he's asking for this provision to be removed from the spending bill is because if it's in there and he knows there aren't enough votes for it to pass, then he gets blamed for shutting down the government. So he doesn't want to bear that burden. So as a result, he's taking the L and he's uh, he's withdrawing this provision or asking Schumer to withdraw this provision. So this is really, really encouraging news. And almost immediately after we got this news, Bernie Sanders put out a video celebrating the death of this provision and essentially commending activists for putting pressure on Democrats to kill this. I want to thank the many hundreds of environmental and social justice organizations who stood up and said to Senator Manchin, your idea of increasing carbon emissions in the midst of the climate crisis that we're facing is absolutely absurd. So I'm delighted that that provision was withdrawn from the continuing resolution. What we have got to do now is increase our efforts significantly to build sustainable energy systems and move aggressively on energy efficiency. My congratulations to all who helped to defeat this terrible proposal. You love to see it. And to be clear, Bernie Sanders is right here. Yes, there were congressional Democrats who exerted pressure on Joe Manchin and Democratic Party leadership, progressives in Congress, in the House specifically. They sent a letter to Pelosi saying that they don't want this to be included to must-pass legislation, though not necessarily saying that we're not going to vote for it. But there were some individuals like Bernie Sanders who were committed to voting against it. There were Republicans who weren't committed to supporting this because they didn't think that Manchin's permitting provision went far enough, as I stated. But ultimately, this is a win for activists who exerted non-stop pressure on Democratic Party leadership, who protested, who put their bodies on the line to make it be heard that they are not going to tolerate this. So this is a win. I want to make that very clear. However, it's not over. It's over for now, but the battle is simply postponed. As Common Dreams explains, neither Schumer nor Manchin gave any indication they are fully giving up on the effort, with the West Virginian saying that it is unfortunate that members of the United States Senate are allowing politics to put the energy security of our nation at risk. Oh, sure. Quote, a failed vote on something as critical as comprehensive permitting reform only serves to embolden leaders like Russian President Vladimir Putin, who wish to see America fall, Manchin added. For that reason, and my firmly held belief that we should never come to the brink of a government shutdown of her politics, I have asked Majority Leader Chuck Schumer to remove the permitting language from the continuing resolution we will vote on this evening. Schumer, for his part, blamed Republicans who want permitting policy to go even further in favor of polluters. So I think that politically it's smart for Schumer to place blame on Republicans, even if they don't necessarily deserve the credit, but you don't want to give them a win ahead of an election. You don't want to say that they stopped this Democrat bill from passing, right? So I understand and expect Schumer to do that. I just love the framing from Joe Manchin. Oh, well, to not include my provision, to not support this provision because of politics, we're emboldening the likes of Vladimir Putin. Okay, but if they supported it, then they'd be emboldening your donors who funded you and 
supported you. And what I love is that Manchin was so desperate that he enlisted the support of the fossil fuel industry, including CEOs, to exert pressure to lobby Congress to get this passed, but it still wasn't enough. It still failed. So I'm genuinely a little bit surprised that this is the way that this whole thing ended, but either way, it's a great victory. And even if it comes back up in the future, I'm going to take this dub for now because it's great to see Joe Manchin have a loss because he's kind of been dictating the terms of every single piece of legislation over the last couple of years. So to see him finally take an L, you love to see it. You just love to see it. A few weeks ago, we learned that Republicans were trying to find some way to create legal hurdles for Joe Biden's student debt cancellation policy. And the problem was finding somebody who had standing to actually sue the administration to block his cancellation of student debt. Well, it turns out they found someone who seemingly will have standing. The problem is that this lawsuit is still probably a long shot. As Common Dreams explains, Frank Garrison, a lawyer at the right-wing Pacific Legal Foundation, filed a lawsuit in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Indiana, arguing that Biden's debt cancellation plan will have untold economic impacts on Americans like him and claiming he will now be forced to have his student debt canceled and then taxed. Garrison lives in Indiana, one of seven states that have said that they may tax canceled student debt. The lawyer had planned to have his student debt wiped out through a program that benefits public services employees, in which case the debt would not have been taxed as income. While Biden's plan may automatically cancel the debt up to 8 million borrowers, the White House pointed out Tuesday that no one, including Garrison, will be forced into the program. Now, that last paragraph there is key, but we'll come back to that. Now, he asked for an injunction to block this while the lawsuit goes forward. So he's literally trying to block student debt cancellation for everyone, knowing perhaps maybe that this might not go through because understand that he filed this lawsuit before Indiana even made it official that they're going to tax student debt cancellation. So this lawsuit is a little bit too early. So I think that they know that they don't have much of a legal leg to stand on, but just understand what they're trying to do here. They're trying to block student debt cancellation for all of us because this one selfish prick thinks that it's going to negatively affect him. And I don't even know if he believes that. This is a right-wing individual who's an opportunist who's trying to just get Biden, I guess. But what I love about this story is that the law firm that he works at is even admitting that if he's not forced to have his debt canceled, then mm, it's going to be more difficult to argue. As the New York Times explains, if borrowers can opt out, Mr. Garrison's claim will be a harder case for us, said Steve Simpson, a senior attorney at Pacific Legal, which is representing Mr. Garrison. It would be harder to argue that he's harmed anymore. Yeah, and that's a really important admission there because understand that this is all means tested. This is a means-tested policy, meaning that there are people who are excluded, there are people who may not actually get it even if they qualify, because again, the Department of Education does not have tax information, they don't have income data for all student loan borrowers, so there are some individuals who may qualify for debt forgiveness but may not actually get it and this is because biden chose to means test it so because he decided to implement this policy in that way well the argument for mr garrison is moot and again he may not have standing we don't necessarily know we'll have to wait and see but what i love is that the law firm itself is admitting that it's going to be difficult to argue this case but yet you have biased media outlets like cnn claiming that mm, actually, maybe he has a point. Like, just watch the way 
that this case was talked about on Jake Tapper's program. Jake, as you pointed out, at the center of the lawsuit is that lawyer. His name is Frank Garrison from Indiana. He says that as part of Biden's student loan forgiveness program, his student loan debt will be automatically wiped, and he doesn't want it to be. So we know that 8 million borrowers will have their student debt forgiveness automatically wiped. And he says that is part of the problem. It's going to leave him with a tax bill that will ultimately leave him worse off than if he continued. Hard to believe. But the lawyers behind the lawsuit say that this will also impact others in at least six other states. When the White House was asked about this lawsuit earlier, Jake, uh, the White House said that the claims are baseless and that no one will be forced. But when I talked to one of the lawyers behind the suit just a short time ago, they said that is not true. There is no process at this point to opt out. And that is part of the problem, that details are still very limited. We get this lawsuit, Jake, on the same day that we get another look at how much this program could cost. This projection coming from the Congressional Budget Office that the price tag now looking to be about $400 billion, according to projections today, Put another way, in 2023, for example, CBO estimates that cash flows to the Treasury will be reduced by about 0.2%. Oh no, the Treasury will receive 0.2% less in revenue, which they already haven't been receiving because student debt payments have been on hold for the last two years because of the pandemic. But whatever will they do without the 0.2% in revenue that they're getting from students who were victims of a predatory college industry? I mean, this is the way that media talks about student debt cancellation, but when it comes to the military budget that increases frequently, they have nothing to say. And notice how they just take Frank Garrison, the right-wing attorney who's suing the White House over this, at his word. They say, oh, well, there's no process at this point to opt out, and he's going to have his student debt automatically wiped. Except you don't know what the process is. CNN does not know what the process is because the administration has not announced what the process is. This hasn't even gone into effect yet. People who do qualify don't know how they actually will get their loans wiped out. Is it going to be automatic? Will we have to opt in? We don't know. Will we have to provide proof of income to get our debt canceled? We don't know. So for them to just report this at face value and not challenge it, I mean, it's really disingenuous because the news is supposed to be objective, but they're very clearly speaking about this from the position of, well, maybe this is bad. Because if they weren't, then they would admit that the 0.2% revenue that the government would lose if ten dollars to $20,000 worth of student debt is canceled, that already hasn't been revenue that the government has been getting. They would juxtapose how much it costs to cancel student debt with the cost of aid that we sent to human rights abusers military budget increases tax cuts for the wealthy but they never do that and that's because they are biased but at the end of the day we don't know what's going to happen what the result will be we'll just have to wait and see but i hope that biden's administration is going to fight this tooth and nail my problem is that and this is a very cynical take so bear with me I don't necessarily think that Biden is going to fight this aggressively enough. I think that he wants the political credit for canceling student debt, knowing that it's popular. But at the same time, if this doesn't go through, if this Republican can successfully block him from canceling debt for everyone, then I think that Biden is just going to be like, oh, well, shucks. Yeah, I don't know. I hope that that's not the case, but I hope that legally they defend this position because it's good policy. And I hope that it's not just window dressing. I hope that he is, you know, in for the long haul to fight this. But, you know, we'll have to wait and see either way. You know, fuck Mr. Garrison. Fuck the Republicans who are going after this. You know, the one time 
that Democrats actually deliver in a real concrete, material way, they start screeching at the top of their lungs. It just shows you who they are, that they don't care about working class people. They don't care about people who this is going to affect, which, by the way, the overwhelming majority of student debt cancellation is going to go to people who make less than $75,000 per year. These are working class people, Republicans. They can't handle, essentially, a tax cut going to anyone other than their rich donors. So this is what we have to deal with. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.